How's everybody doing? You, you warm? You warm? Okay. Um, it's, it's, it's good for it to be a little chilly and you can sit closer to somebody who's sitting next to you. Deeper community. Before I jump in this morning, um, I wanted to mention a couple things. Caitlin already mentioned it right after the worship service. And we're going to try and get you out of here a little bit earlier. We've planned this, uh, they, the team, racial justice team, has planned this really important time for you. And I, I'm hoping and praying that you'll take time for it over some coffee and muffins. Um, the racial justice team has been working really hard, actually for the last six, eight months, to um, help our church be gospel-centered in dealing with the issue of race. And so the first thing that they're doing is helping us process the elections, whether you're Democrat, Republican, and it, it, it's actually not about political affiliation, but really about how do we as gospel-centered people interact with what happened and then move forward as gospel-centered people being witnesses. And so particularly as we come around holidays and I, you're going to be around family members and have conversations, this is a great time for you to be able to interact with your church family so that you will be equipped to interact with your family members. Okay, so I I want to encourage you, please take that time to go today, and I look forward to seeing you there. Um, There are table numbers on your bulletins. We do this, you know, periodically to mix you all up. So if you're wondering, like, where do I sit when I go in there? Back of your bulletin is a number, and the number corresponds to a table in the fellowship hall. So after the worship, we'll get you out of here. Find the number that's in the back of your bulletin and find the table that you're designated to and go sit and have a wonderful conversation that's going to be led well by our team. Okay? Yes? All right. Better see you there. Um, to two services, Christmas Eve and also New Year's Eve. I uh, want to encourage you to, particularly Christmas Eve, invite your family and friends who might not have a church community or worship service to go to. So short service will go about 45, 50 minutes. Literally, the entire service um, where we focus on Jesus being the light of the world. And uh, it's a great opportunity for your friends and family who may not be exposed to the gospel to come in here. A very simple, simple presentation of the gospel via song and word. So uh, as we jump in today in the third season of Advent, confession. Um, Christmas sermons are really hard to preach. Because, do you know why I say that, by the way? Because, uh, one, mostly you just glaze over during, you know, it's like Christmas. You know, it's kind of like Easter. You kind of know what happens. So there's really no surprise. And how many Christmas sermons have you heard, right? I mean, how many times can you hear about the birth? And the, which, by the way, for me, breaks my heart. Because the songs that we sing during Christmas, do you realize that some of these songs are some of the most theologically, like, rich songs we sing? Do you know that? Like these hymns that we sang today, I know we just kind of, you know, but man, there's so much great truth packed into these. But we're so, I don't know, familiar with these sermons and songs, just kind of gloss over them. Secondly, here's another reason why I, really, they're difficult to preach. And let me see if I could present this well, okay? Uh, the reason why I, I, your pastor, even though I've been doing this for 20 some years, when I come around this season, I just, oh. For this reason. The plot line of the Bible is this. God creates the world. The world and humanity fall into sin and decay. God sends his son to redeem the world and create a new humanity. And then it ends with God returning to restore all of creation. Christmas, we celebrate and remember the, the news of this, the good news that the world, a new world is coming, a world without suffering and evil and injustice and sin. Christmas is good news, not just because it's good news for me, but it's good news because it's good news for the world. Amen? See, see you, you get into where, so it's good news for the, it's not just, thank God that Christmas presents us with fulfillment for the world. For, for our personal lives, but there is, there is peace, justice, reconciliation that's coming because of what Christ has done. So therein lies the problem. Because if the message of Christmas is good news, because when Christ returns, there will be peace on earth. 
How much of a good news is that if you've never known war? If you've never known chaos? If you've never known restlessness? When Christ returns, there will be justice on earth. How good is that good news if you've never experienced injustice? Are you, are you tracking? When Christ returns, there will be no more hunger. There will be no more poverty. How good is that good news if you've never had to worry about where your next meal is going to come from? When Christ returns, there will be no more sickness and no more death. How good is that good news if you don't know the pain of suffering or the sting of death? Are you tracking with me? How good is that good news if you're an educated middle-class American living in Chicago? Are you tracking with me this morning? I mean, how good, do you see why I hate Christmas? <laughs> because I'm speaking to an audience, and I'm you, I'm you. By the way, there are folks in our church for whom when I say that, they're like, yes, 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 it's good news. Come, Lord Jesus. It's because for many of us, the good news of what Christ's return means doesn't have as much a resonance for us. To which you give you, well, Peter, I can't help that I'm an educated middle-class American living in Chicago, but here's what you can help. Your, your social location doesn't have to keep you from living an insular life. Do you know what I mean? I tell you, you might not be poor homeless, but when I talk to people who work with the homeless, whether as a volunteer or for their living, when they, who people who pour out their lives for the poor and homeless, when they hear that Christ is going to return and there will be no more hunger poverty, they react to it differently than I do and you do. When, when, when I talk to someone who may not have experienced injustice themselves, but they work as allies of those who suffer under the hands of injustice, the news that Christ is going to come and Christ will establish a world of perfect justice, they can't wait for that to come. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. Psalm 34 says the Lord is close to the brokenhearted. And he rescues those whose spirits are crushed. And during Christmas, we remember that a Savior, a God, didn't allow his social location to determine whether he chose to enter into pain, injustice, and mess of a broken world. We have a, we have a Savior, think about it, who's, by the way, <laughs> talk about social location, he, he, he lived in a really good neighborhood with some really good neighbors enjoying the praise of heaven. But he chooses to enter in to be close to the brokenhearted. And I tell you, whether Christmas, seriously, guys, for us, is a ho-hum or come, Lord Jesus, often is determined by how close we are to the brokenhearted. How close we are to those hearts who are crushed. Today we're going to uh, look at a very familiar passage. Luke chapter 1, it's Mary's song or the Magnificat. And by the way, the thing that I notice about this song, there is an explosion of joy and hope. It's not like, hmm, there is an explosion of joy in Mary's heart. There is an explosion of joy and hope as she thinks about what Christmas, what coming of the Messiah into the world means for her. And by the way, I find it really cool. Do you? And when God chose to reveal this message of the gospel, the first person who heard the gospel that we have in our form and responded to in faith and as a result was changed was a teenage peasant girl in the backwoods of the Roman Empire. Does anybody else find that cool? The way of the cross, you guys. Where up is down. Down is up. First is last. Last is first. By the way, the Magnificat, Dietrich Bonhoeffer said this. It's not some syrupy. <laughs> she was a bad young lady. She, she, that, that, that first Advent hymn 
is revolutionary and packed with subversive kingdom language. Do you know that? Yes? Someone? Yes? Yes! So we're going to look at this very familiar, and my hope and prayer is not, you guys will sit and today go, chestnuts roasted on an open fire. But you'll hear this hymn and say, come Lord Jesus. Amen? By the way. All right. Well, not by the way. We'll just go. Let's, let's just jump in. Let's just jump in. I, I could do by the ways all day long. Luke chapter 1 verse 46 the Magnificat, Mary's song. We're just going to jump right in where Mary begins the song. And verse 46. And Mary, by the way, here's what we're going to do. It's a really short passage. We're going to all read it together. Okay, we're going to read it like we're saying. Ready? Verse 46. Here we go. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. My soul and my spirit are not two different things. It's not like Mary saying, my soul is glorifying over here and my spirit. They're two, say, it's used interchangeably, which by the way is more powerful because it's a repetition. It's an emphatic point when she says, my soul and my spirit. She's basically saying, I have been changed and impacted to my inner depths. I have been changed and impacted and melted to my inner depths by what I am about to see. She's saying my mind has been impacted. I've never seen anything that made sense of the world. I've never seen anything that clarified so much for me. My heart, my heart, my heart has been rendered joyful and hopeful because of what I have seen. My heart and my mind. She is, she is bursting out with joy and hope. At what she is saying. Verse 48. For. That literally means because. She's saying my soul and my spirit glorifies and rejoices. My heart and my mind. I've been changed the depths of my being is what she's saying. Because of these truths. And the truths that Mary's about to sing about. Which we'll look at. Are the same truths that we sing about at Christmas. Now what's the difference? Why is Mary transformed and changed by these truths? And why you and I. No, no, no. Because Mary actually believes what she's singing about. Mary actually believes what she is singing about. What does she sing about? We're gonna, oh, that's what we're going to spend the time on. She sings essentially about who God is and what he has done in history. Her song is jam-packed with truths about who God is and how he has acted in history in the life of Israel. That is what prompts this explosion of joyful song and praise. I'm going to say this real quick. The true meaning of Christmas is it shows us who God is. The true meaning of Christmas, church family, is it shows us who God, that's the ultimate meaning of Christmas. Please, 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 please do not confuse the meaning of Christmas with the results of Christmas. So many people, Christian churches all over the country today and the next two weeks will focus on the results of Christmas. They'll say Christmas is about Peace on earth and goodwill towards all men. Christmas is about being generous in your spirit. That's not what Christmas is about. Christmas is about this is who God is and this is what he has done in history. And when I am changed by that truth, then the result of Christmas is how I live. Do you hear that, church? Christmas shows us who God don't and we're going to see the results of Christmas at the end and it's powerful and it's challenging but don't mix it because if you focus on the results of Christmas you and I will get warm fuzzy feelings for two weeks and then once Christmas is over we go back to our same way of being Mary is permanently changed she is permanently changed by what she sees and as a result her life is different. If I can see God for who he is, if I can see, when I see that God is the ultimate giver who gives the gift of his son, then I can be changed to be a radically generous person. If I focus on me first, I'm telling you, I have warm fuzzies for two weeks during Christmas, and then I'm selfish January 1. See, when I see God, when I am changed by God as the ultimate giver, 
The change is lasting and permanent. When I see God as the ultimate judge who brings justice on earth, then I am changed by that truth and I can work tirelessly towards issues of injustice. When I can see God as the God who is willing to step into the mess that is our world, then I can be changed to believe that God is willing to step into the mess that is our lives. Amen? The challenge for Christmas, listen, is to see God for who he is and what he has done. That's the meaning of Christmas. And as a result, our lives can be changed. Don't confuse the two. What is a Mary sees about who God is? Three things that we're going to focus on. And I'll get you out of here. Verse 40. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the, everybody say this with me, ready? The mighty one has done great things for me. What's the first attribute of God that Mary glories in? Is this, God is mighty. God is mighty. You know what Christmas declares? Nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God. Mary's revelation of God's might is a result of an earlier exchange she has with the angel Gabriel who gives her the news. And in Luke chapter 1, in the earlier In verse 30, this is what we find. And the angel said to her, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. The Lord your God will give him the throne of his father David, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be? Since I'm a virgin. That's a euphemism for it's impossible. Or if you're a fan of Princess Bride, inconceivable inconceivable. I thought about that all eyes. I don't know why. She basically saying, it's impossible. Verse 35. And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Verse 47. Say this with me. For nothing will be impossible with God. You know, angel saying to her, angel saying, Mary, you're like any good Jewish woman. You believe intellectually in your head that God is mighty. There's nothing impossible with God. But practically, you live as if God is limited. I just got to throw that. Can anybody relate this morning? Yes? Anybody relate this morning? Hey, I, I, I know what that's like. To believe intellectually that God is mighty, that nothing, that nothing, that nothing is impossible with God. But Peter, when it comes to my life, when it comes to practically living it out, yes, I live my life as if God is limited. Anybody relate to that? Why do we do that? Why do you do that? Why do I do that? I think it's because we forget. I think it's because we forget what God has done. Uh, Let me take you on a little journey here. The Israelites forgot. The Israelites forgot. God delivers them from the land of slavery in Egypt. 400 years they were enslaved. God delivers them powerfully. The Israelites have just walked on dry ground as they saw the Red Sea separate. Before they could dust the sand off their sandals, when they see what appear to be giants in the land of Canaan, the land that God had promised them, Israel, out of fear, rebel against God. And as a result, they go on a really long road trip, like 40 years long road trip. Do you remember that? So here's what God does. You ready? God goes, I'm going to make sure that you will never forget my rescue. You will never forget my redemption. You will never forget, listen, my ultimate display of power and love. 
I'm going to make sure that ingrained in your life and worship is the truth of my rescue, of my redemption, ultimate display of God's power and love. So when he gives the Israelites the Ten Commandments, do you remember that? He begins every time by saying this. Deuteronomy chapter 24, 18. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. God is constantly saying to the Israelites, remember what I did when I delivered you from 400 years of slavery. Remember that. Why? Because when you face situations that seem seemingly impossible, when you encounter what seemed to be unconquerable giants in your life, when you encounter circumstances where your smarts, your ingenuity, your wealth, your power is not enough. Remember my rescue. Remember my redemption. Remember what I did for you. Why? For nothing. If I can do that, it's impossible with God. That's why ah, Israel sang, sang in the life of the corporate worship these truths. Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17. Listen, the Lord your God is with you. Say the following with me. He is mighty to save. Do you know why? Even though intellectually we go, God is mighty. Nothing is impossible with God. We practically live as if God is limited. Do you know why when we face impossible situations, we cower in fear and go, yeah, it's because we forget. What do we forget, Peter? Our rescue, our redemption, our deliverance. We forget that the foundation of our lives, you guys, is God did the impossible. Is anybody with me this morning? Ephesians chapter 2, for when we were what? Dead in our transgressions and sins. Anybody this morning realize we needed to be rescued and delivered, not helped. We didn't just need help to, you know, kind of get us over the top. I've said this before. God helps those who help themselves is not in the Bible. The Bible says we weren't spiritually sick. We were spiritually what? Dead. And God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, came into us out of his amazing love and grace. And he rescued, he delivered, he redeemed us. The foundation of our Christian lives is God did the impossible. You know what God would say about the impossible situation in our lives today? God would go, remember your rescue. Remember your redemption. Remember how you were delivered. This is why in our church, I preach so often on the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. The gospel isn't just to get you and I into the kingdom. It's what grows us in the kingdom. Do you understand that? The essence and the foundation of our faith is we are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by grace. Is there anything in our power that we were able to do anything about that? God says, absolutely not. So when you and I look at the giant's impossibilities in our lives, we remember that in Christ, the ultimate giants of Satan, sin, and death has been conquered and we have the victory. So anytime we look at an impossible situation, addictions that we can't seem to break free from, habitual sins that continue to bog us down, reconciliation in a relationship, marriage that's falling apart, health, healing, or some of us, passion for Jesus that we once had that we feel like might never come back. When we look at the situation and go, God, can you do anything about this? His answer, remember your rescue. Anybody relate to this this morning? Do you know how you know if this is powerful and a work in your life? 
Do you have any sense of wonder about you? Do you, do you see how Mary's song is brimming with sense of wonder, astonishment? He, he has been, check this, she, she says, he, he has, uh, all generations call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me, for me. There's a sense of joy and astonishment, a childlike wonder about her. There's only two ways to understand Christianity. You could either look at Christianity and go, it's me finding God, or it's God finding me. If it's you finding God, there's no joy. There's no joy. But if it's God finding you, hello, anybody. If it's God finding you, I was blind. But now I see. I was lost. Now I'm found. All these years, I thought I was seeking after him, seeking after him, seeking only to realize that he was seeking after me. If your Christian life this morning is one of, I'm a Christian. Why? I was born a Christian. I'm a Christian. Why? I was raised a Christian. I was Christian. Why? Because my parents are Christian. I was Christian. Why? Because I try really hard at it. There is no sense of joy or wonder. But if you're sitting here going, in a million years, Peter, there's no way I'd be sitting here if God hadn't found me. How amazing is that? How amazing is that? Is there a wonder and joy about you as you sing these songs? Or is it, uh, have you lost the wonder of Christmas? Have you lost the wonder of your rescue, of your salvation? Has it been too long, Christian child? May God restore childlike wonder in me. Amen? Holy is his name. Verse 50. His mercy extends to those that's what's called a pregnant pause. I'm sorry. No, I was just thirsty. His mercy extends to those who, say it with me, fear him from generation to generation. Mary sings about the twin attributes of God that lie at the center of who God is and why Jesus came as Savior. God is both holy and merciful. God is both holy and merciful. Mary sees that and it explodes in joy. I love preaching on doctrine, especially during Christmas. I know that some of us, our eyes glaze over and we hear doctrine. But doc, this is what I mean by meaning of Christmas and not just results. Do you realize if God isn't both holy and merciful and equally perfectly holy and merciful, we'd be eternally lost? Do you realize that when we sing oh, all these hymns about God's holiness and God's mercy, unless God is both equally perfectly holy and perfectly merciful, we'd be eternally lost. What do you mean? God is perfectly holy. You know what that means? That means God's very nature, his very being is acidic to sin. That means that God will never get used to sin. He is perfectly holy. And therein lies the problem with humanity. We're used to sin. We're used to living our own lives our own way and saying, I'm king. We're used to seeing injustice and evil wreak havoc in our creation. We're used to dysfunctional relationships. We're used to relating to each other with suspicion and pride and arrogance. We live in a world where daily we're reminded of sin. Sin enters the world and all that God intended for good, all that God intended for his glory, all that God intended for our enjoyment in life is marred because of sin. So what's God to do? He is perfectly holy, which means he can't overlook sin. If God overlooks sin, he is not perfectly holy. And if God is not perfectly holy, then he can't be God. And if you struggle this morning with the idea of a God who judges sin, I just have a simple question to ask you. Is a God who turns a blind eye, blind eye to sin, evil and justice, worthy of worship? Is a God who looks at all that's happening, in a, a God who looks at what's happening in Aleppo, Syria. A God who looks at the innocent murder of children. A God who looks at that and simply turns a blind eye. Is that God worthy of worship? Church, is that God worthy of worship? 
Absolutely not. If there is a God who is worthy of worship, that he must be perfectly holy. He must be perfectly just. He must judge sin. But therein lies the problem. If God is perfectly holy and perfectly just, and he must judge sin, evil, and injustice, what hope is there for us? What hope is there for you and me? God is perfectly holy. But man, oh man, oh man. God is also perfectly what? Say it with me, church. Merciful. Is that good news to anybody? The Bible says God's mercies are new what? Every morning. <laughs> God is perfectly holy. He must judge sin and evil and injustice. And God is mighty, which means, by the way, that he has the power to do anything, including wiping this whole thing out and starting all over. But in his mercy, in his mercy... God does something for us. What is that? God's only child becomes humanity so that all of humanity could become God's children. The good news of Christmas is in God's mercy. God's only child becomes humanity so that all of humanity could become God's children. Is that good news to anybody this morning? Jesus, the son of God, is born a baby, human being. Jesus, the son of God, walks on this earth for 30 plus years. Jesus, the son of God, his life culminates on the cross where he pays the penalty for our sins and the sins of the world. The cross of Christ is where the holiness of God and the mercy of God meet the cross is where the holiness of God, where God judges sin, but where the mercy of God, God's love for us meet. Because instead of having sinful humanity paid the price for our sins, God himself pays the price for our sins. And one of the names of Jesus we spend time on Christmas is, and his name is Jesus. In Hebrew is Yeshua, which literally means what? The one who saves. He is a savior who comes to rescue us from our sin. Holy and merciful. Is this good news to anybody this morning? Is this good news to anybody this morning? Do you know how you can tell if this is real in your life? Do you know how you can tell if this is real in my life? First, there's wonder and astonishment. Me? But it also leads to what the Bible calls fear of God that leads to obedience. Here's the question. Why do you obey? Why do you obey? Why do I obey? The Christmas story is jam-packed with why we obey. In verse 50, Mary says, His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. In Psalm 130, you see the same thing where the psalmist says, I fear you because you have forgiven all my sins. Every single one of us this morning, there are only two reasons why you and I obey. Two reasons why you and I obey God. One is fear of being hurt. And the second is fear of hurting the one that we love. If the gospel is real in your life, your motivation for obeying is not fear of being hurt, but is fear of hurting the one who said he'll never leave you or forsake you. If your obedience is driven and motivated church family this year and next year by if I don't obey, God will punish me. If I don't obey, God will withhold blessing from me. The Bible calls it the fear of law or the fear of being hurt. And that motivation for obedience will be temporary at best and fleeting. There's another motivation for obedience though. If you know what it's like to love someone and to have someone who loves you, 
you know what it's like to obey? Because you don't want to disappoint. You don't want to hurt. You don't want to wound the one who loves you. Harry says, when you understand the holiness and mercy of God, it leads to fear. Fear of what? Fear of hurting the one who at an infinite cost himself said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Fear of hurting the one who said, at an infinite cost to me, there is no more condemnation and no more punishment coming your way. Do you see how that motivation for obedience could be the engine of our lives, at least to an honest life, a pure life, a generous life? Church, is the gospel real to you? What is your motivation for obeying? Is it fear of being hurt or fear of hurting the one who sends his only son, lives the life we should have lived, and dies the death we should have died, so that by faith in him, we could be adopted into the family of God Not by our records, but by his record. Not by our works, but his works. He is holy. He is merciful. And lastly, verse 51. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. Verse 52. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. This is the most aversive revolutionary statement, dare I say, in all of the Bible. It's verses like this, by the way, that could have gotten you killed for having a copy of the book of Luke during the Roman Empire. Verse 53. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away empty. Third attribute of God that Mary glories in is he is a humble king. Mary sings this song. Caesar Augustus rules the known world with absolute power and authority. He claims literally to be God, to be Savior. Roman soldiers are coming into your small towns and saying, Caesar is Lord! And if you do not bow your knees and confess Caesar is Lord, you're accused of treason and could be killed. And what does Mary say? This is why I said, is this 13, 14 year old girl, the most, well, do you remember how she begins this song? My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God. My, I'm going to say it again. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. A teenage peasant girl in the backwoods of the Roman Empire, starts the revolution of all human revolutions by declaring what? Caesar thinks he's Lord. Big dude in Rome. I know one who has come to usher in the kingdom of God. Jesus is my Lord. Jesus is my Savior. Jesus, I've seen the largest kingdoms in the world in Caesar, but I've seen what God can do. Verse 52, he has brought down rulers from their thrones. And all the people in the first century church would have been like, amen. And all of us in 2016 go, okay. Look how different this king is. Look how utterly different this king is. This king's arrival on the stage of human history shatters every expectation of the Messiah. Surely God's king, the cosmic deliverer, will be born in a castle. No, in a manger. Surely he would be brought up in the royal courts with the best education and opportunities possible. Surely he will conquer all of the Roman world and set his people free by military and political conquest. Right? Ah, uh, this king shatters all expectations by literally reversing and flipping on its head every single value of the known world. Look at how he's born. He is born in a manger to a peasant, unwed, teenage girl. 
this king comes and does the exact opposite of what we might expect. The gospel story, church, is not about a strong God who sends a strong Messiah to save the strong who obey. It's about a strong God who becomes weak in Jesus to save people who are too weak to obey. Is that good news? The humble king. That's what Mary is singing about in verses 52 and 53. She's giving a preview of the Beatitudes here. It's the humble who enter the kingdom, not the proud. It's the weak who will be lifted up, not the strong. It's the hunger, hungry who will be filled and not the self-sufficient. And church, listen, check this out. Check this out. Check this out. This humble king now has millions and millions and millions of followers who follow him. They have left the kingdom of this world and been transferred into the kingdom of God. And their lives, check this out, are also characterized by a reversal of values. Their lives also flips the world's value system on its head. He now has millions and millions of followers on earth who no longer live for values of greed and power and recognition and status. No, 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 no. They deny themselves, take up the cross and follow him. No, millions and millions of followers in his kingdom What they do is they embrace self-denial as a way of being and live a radically other-centered life. Here are the values that are prized in the kingdom of God who follow this humble king. It's things like humble servanthood. It's things like radical sacrifice. It's things like costly love. It's things like self-denial. Do you know how the first century believers turned the world upside down? Do you know what our world desperately needs now? It's people who will not just be blown away by the sensual truths of the gospel and glorying in the attributes of God as holy and merciful and mighty. But they follow this humble king into his way of being. And because they've been freed from the enslaving idols of power and greed and comfort and convenience, they, they, Spend their lives on behalf of the weak, on the poor, on the marginalized. They don't just Christmas feel good for, no, they have experienced a permanent revolution in their soul and live radically different value system to that of the world. First century church changed their world for Jesus because seeing the glory of God and entering into the kingdom's way of being live their lives. Live their lives to the opposite of what their culture and what their peers. Um, I'm not the most uh, practical preacher in the world. I don't normally send you out here with, so therefore, here are the five things you need to do. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to say, here are five things you need to do. (laughs) In all seriousness, Christmas ought to so revolutionize you and me. I want to just walk out here warm fuzzy. If I may be bold enough, to actually challenge you with what I'll call 2017 kingdom goals if you follow the way of this king then I'm done number one everybody please listen if you're still unsettled about where you live do you know what it means to follow the humble king in the way of the kingdom live where it will do the most good and not just where it's the most comfortable I'm going to say it right now. Comfort and convenience are not kingdom values. They are prized values of our world. Can I get an amen? 
comfort and convenience in 2017 will come rushing at you. And every which way, our culture will shout at you, pursue comfort and convenience at all costs. And the way of the kingdom says, flip that on its head. Because if you're in the kingdom, you endure hardship, suffering, and yes, even, 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 even persecution for the way of Jesus. Live where it will do the most good. Not where it's the most comfortable. Second, don't pursue a career based on what will give you status. Instead, ask, what does our world need? Think about your career path. I wish all the college students were here. You tell them this sermon, okay? Why are you at that school? Why do you want that degree? Why do you want that job? Don't pursue career just on what will give you status. But what does our world need? Third, 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 third. Don't define success in terms of what benefits you, but what benefits the common good. Ask, how am I and what I'm doing leading to the flourishing of my neighbors, flourishing of my neighborhood, flourishing of my community, flourishing of the city? Do you realize this is the message of Christmas? Fourth, leverage whatever power you have not to advance your own agenda, but to serve others. How do you treat your employers? If you're a doctor, how will you treat your nurses? How will you treat other people that work at the hospital? And if you are in positions of power because of your race, ethnicity, will you speak up and speak out against injustice? Leverage whatever power you have. Fifth, I lied, there's six. Fifth, Don't hoard wealth to support a lifestyle that makes you feel significant, but be radically generous, especially to the poor. This is an entire sermon in itself, but this this song is jam-packed with God's heart for the poor. God's heart for the poor. God's heart for the poor. The Bible says God is constantly, especially sensitive to the needs of the poor. Book of Luke, one out of every seven verses, talks about Jesus and his heart for the poor. When he comes on the scene, he says, God has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. It is essential to God's character. His heart is close to the poor. And what does Jesus says is our response. He says, whatever you do unto them, you do what? Unto me. Being sensitive and being involved in the needs of the poor is not just a good thing. Jesus says, it's an essential part of my discipleship. And lastly, be close to the brokenhearted, to those whose spirits are crushed. I guess everything this year has been leading up to this, particularly this fall, as he spent time talking about what it means to be people of the kingdom, a radical radical kingdom what can you do what can I do in 2017 do you know what this may mean this may mean that we take some risks and leave the comforts of our social location that means we leave the comforts of a familiar neighborhood maybe comforts for some of us of familiar relationships Maybe this year we take a stock of all of our relationships. And as we pursue 2017, we ask the question, how close am I to the brokenhearted? How close am I to the spirit, those whose spirits are crushed? How close am I to identifying with in the way of Jesus, to stand with the broken? and the hurting, and the marginalized. He came from heaven to earth to show the way. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Look, the virgin will conceive a child, and she'll give birth to a son. And they'll call him Emmanuel, which means what? God with, close to.
standing next to. Identify us. Father, we CC, my brother, I'm wondering if we could, when I'm done praying, I'm wondering if we're just sing that song that you guys opened up with, which is, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. See, church family, I, I, I could only preach. I, I don't know where you are, and I have no ability nor power for you to grasp the true message and meaning of Christmas so that it would explode in an explosion of joy and hope. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. But I do know that those of you and those that are close to the brokenhearted, close to those whose spirits are crushed, will see and hear and respond to the Christian message and the gospel differently. What are you hopeful for this Christmas? Personal peace or peace on earth? Peace on earth. What are you hopeful for that your personal needs will be met or that the world our souls long for a world without any hunger any suffering any thirst my soul glorifies the Lord my spirit rejoices and God my Savior Help us to see you. Help us to catch a glimpse of you. Help us to catch a glimpse of you, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. Help us to glory in your character and your attributes. Mighty to save is he. Holy and merciful is he. Humble king are you.